Bulletin, half sheet. Um, you might want to grab one of those and help follow along. A little more information on those than there are on the screen, just for space limitations when we put things up on the screen. Try and give you a little bit more in the notes. We're going to be in chapters 23 and 24 of 1 Samuel this morning. All right, let's Father, we, we turn to you this morning as we uh, begin to, to contemplate your word, and we just ask for your help. We understand that your, your Holy Spirit is what we need in order to understand your word rightly, so we ask for that assistance. We ask that you would just um, help us as we spend time in your word to see, um, see you for who you are, see ourselves for who we are that we would be able to rightly respond to, to you based on what you show us. We desire to be more like your son. I pray you'd make us like him and that you'd do whatever you need to do in order to accomplish that, just as you did in David's life. And we just ask that you would uh, bless our time here this morning, bless the time the children have in their classes. We pray that you'd be working in their hearts to show them the truth of, of Scripture the truth about you, the truth about themselves and their need for you. And we ask that you'd be glorified through it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning and looking forward to spending some time in 1 Samuel 23 and 24 this morning. I've entitled these two chapters, The Lord Delivers His Anointed. Deliverance is really going to be this the theme of these chapters um, as we see uh, what the Lord has to do for, for his um, anointed servant, David. Appreciate Ty um, substituting for me last week, and he covered a number of chapters, a difficult task to take on multiple chapters at a time, um, but he covered them well, and I appreciated that. I just wanted to kind of review real quickly um, what's been going on with David, this man after God's own heart, since the epic battle with Goliath, so reaching back several weeks, um, the Goliath is is a, you know the, the Goliath story is a well known um, event, well known account in Scripture, and you might look at it as a high water mark of David's um, David's experience. You might look at it as um, in the epic climax of um, the just showing how David should be the next king of Israel. But what's happened since then that we've covered so far? In chapter 18, um, verse 14, it says that David enjoyed success in all his undertakings because God was with him. At the end of chapter 18 and verse 30, it says he had more success than all the servants of Saul and his name was being esteemed. His reputation was growing. So this is like, this is like a trajectory that is like almost straight up for David in Israel. And then Saul starts to get nervous and afraid, and Saul tries to kill him a couple of times. He escapes in chapter 19, and he flees, and he flees to Samuel, the prophet who had appointed, uh, anointed him, and we see him on the run now. And this is, there's a turning point here. He, is, he has gone from being you know, within the, um, the close circle of Saul's... Um, uh, leadership team, and now he's running from Saul. Chapter 20 is the chapter about his relationship with Jonathan, and he asks Jonathan to lie for him. 
you know, there's limits to loyalty here. And he crosses the line. He asks Jonathan to lie for him. Then he goes on in chapter 21 and he lies to Ahimelech, the priest, about why he is there and what he is doing in Nob. And what is the result of that? It's horrible. The, the, it results in the annihilation of 85 priests and their families. Josephus says 385 people. It's just horrible. Ironically, what Saul does to Nob, he w- did not do to the Amalekites. It's like so, so horrible. Chapter 21 goes on to, to um, tell us what David is doing. He, he runs to Gath. Well, Gath is not an Israelite town. Gath is a Philistine town. And as Ty pointed out last week, this is Goliath's hometown. And David shows up wearing Goliath's sword. And it's like, this is just, you know, what, what is he doing running to the enemy? And they're on to him. And so he has to fake being crazy in order to get out of this jam that he's put himself in. So he goes to deception again. So we start to see lying and deception as becoming almost routine for David. And it's like, that sounds more like Saul than it does this man after God's own heart. So what is going on with that? Chapter 21, verse 12, it says he fears Achish. It's like, oh, all this deception is based on fear. Like that sounds a lot like Saul. Over the past month or so, we've explored how fear has driven Saul in a number of respects. But in chapter 22, we see that in spite of all of these problems, he's attracting people to him, specifically 400 men. But these are not necessarily the cream of the crop of Israel. It says that they are people that are debt-ridden or in distress or embittered. They've had things happen to them that they're very bitter about. So we're feeling at this point that, that David is starting to look like he's going down Saul's road. And it's just like, oh, David, don't go down this road. This is not the place to be. We've seen what happened to Saul. He seeks refuge, refuges. He seeks refuge. There we go. In places that are insecure. The places where he seeks refuge cannot provide him refuge. His strategies are ineffective. He's on the run. He seems to have forgotten the God who delivered him from the lion, the bear, and the giant. Where is this God? This powerful God that you so wonderfully proclaimed to Goliath and to Saul in preparing to fight Goliath. So we've seen David with this fear-based lapse that I'll call it over the last couple of chapters, and he's running and lying. And now we'll see in these, in these next couple of chapters that we deal with today that he is turning to seek God's guidance and submitting to God's will. And this is what a man after God's own heart does. So a man after God's own heart is not perfect. That should be really assuring to us that there, there are going to be lapses where we are fearful, where we do things that we shouldn't, like lying and deceiving, But the man after God's own heart is the one that will turn to God and realize that is not the answer, that is not how God wants us to live. And he'll realize that that God is in charge. God is sovereign and God is the authority. And how we respond to authority will be manifest in our lives. And how David responded to authority was, was manifested in him. 
he learns important lessons in these chapters that we'll look at. And I think one of the most important is he learns to wait on God. He learns that in submitting to God's authority and in waiting, he, he has to wait for God to accomplish the plan for his life. So we will see David's response to God and God's anointing of him throughout these couple of chapters as he continues to run. run being on the run, being chased by Saul, was God's will for David at this time. That's an interesting thought. We'll circle back to that at the end. So let's look at chapter 23, uh, and we'll start in verse 1. And we'll see in chapter 23 that the Lord is the one that delivers David from Saul. First of all, at this town called Keilah. If I could have someone read verses 1 through 5 for us. Yeah, Jeff, thanks. Now they told David... Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, and I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Thanks, Jeff. So here we, we see that there's like a communication structure in Israel that's going on. And we're going to see this throughout these couple of chapters that people learn of things, but we're not told how they learn of things. So I don't know if it's just like the gossip network or the you know, trade you know, people moving around in commerce or what, but David learns that there, and this is fairly real time, David learns that there's a town named Keilah that's not very far away that the Philistines have attacked and they're attacking at a critical time, which is harvest. So they are attacking when the wheat is being piled on these threshing floors. And David does what? What's his response here? Does he charge into battle? No. He says, I'm going to ask God what to do. Now, this is so refreshing because this is something we haven't seen from David in the last couple of chapters. Why is this significant? I've kind of hinted at it in my introduction here, but why is this significant that, that David seeks God's guidance at this point? We do all need to, absolutely. Yeah, we need God's guidance. It's definitely a contrast to Saul. Definitely a contrast to Saul. That's good. So one of the one of the literary devices that the writer has used is to focus the spotlight on Saul. Here's what Saul's doing, and then shift the spotlight and show here's what David's doing. And so we're seeing this contrast that this is what a man after God's own heart does, not that. Hutch? Same thing. Okay, good. Thanks. Yeah. I think we're seeing that David has reached a point where he realizes he needs God to guide him. He needs God in his life. He is dependent. He's tried to do it on his own the last couple of chapters. It hasn't worked out very well. He's lucky to be lucky, lucky to be alive. You know, air quotes on lucky for those that are listening, not seeing. So he needs God. He is changing his focus here too. 
His focus is not just on me and, oh, poor me, I'm being chased by Saul, my life is being threatened and I've got to run, Um, but his focus is on serving others. Here is a town that's in need, should I go and help them? And he's submitting to God's authority and God's will. He's saying, God, you are my authority, is this what you want me to do? I am going to seek your guidance. He's also acting like a king. Who should have been running down and protecting Keilah? Saul should have been. I mean, if there's one fundamental purpose of a national governmental structure, it is protection of the people. And Saul wasn't doing it. The, the, the information comes to David, and David does it. It's an opportunity for David to, again, demonstrate to the people that he is worthy to be king. But David's men are fearful. They're saying, like, we're afraid. Hey, we're like in hiding here. Like, we're not soldiers. We're just like people that are like bankrupt and like in distress. And we're, we're not ready to go fight people. We're not soldiers. And that kind of gives David pause, evidently. And he goes back and double checks with the Lord. Is this overly cautious? I, I don't think so. I think he is just wanting to make sure that this is exactly what God wants him to do. It kind of reminds me of Gideon when he does the fleece double check. You know, like, can I just make sure that this is what I'm going to do? Because it's like, it sounds kind of like risky. And so we see that God doesn't get impatient with David and say, I told you what to do, get down there and do it. He doesn't do that. He just says, yeah, 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 that's what I meant. Yeah, go do it. That's what you should be doing. And David does God's will and he goes down and he saves Keilah. So once David is certain of God's will, he is a man of action. That's what we see. Now we move on, verses 6 through 8. Can I have someone read those? Yeah, Hutch. When Abathah, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by emerging, entering the, a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. All right. Thank you, Hutch. So here we see that Abiathar, the, the one, or Abiathar, depending on how you want to pronounce it, my wife and I differ on this uh, pronunciation, um, he, he is the priest that was the one that was saved from Nob, and he escapes to David. David's protecting him now. And so he has this ephod, which is used to seek God's will, and that's important for David. Saul, through this whatever this communication network is, learns where David is, and Saul is posturing that, that God is on his side. He says, you know, God has given him into my hand, He misinterprets why David is at Keilah. So whose authority is Saul acting under at this point? He's acting under his own authority. He's saying, God has given him into my hand. He tries to make it spiritual, but we see what Saul is doing. Saul is concerned principally about number one. He's concerned about himself. So he mounts this expedition to capture David at Keilah. David hears about this. So verse, jump down to verse 9. David knew that Saul was plotting harm. And so David now seeks deliverance. 
David asked God two questions in verses 10 and 11. First question is, will Keilah turn him over to Saul? And then he must think about it a little more and say, hold on, will Saul even come down to Keilah? And God gives him responses, and he responds in reverse order. He says, Saul will come down, and Keilah will turn him over. So this town of Keilah has been saved by David, and David is saying, are these people who I just saved going to actually turn me over to Saul? It's like, how ungrateful would that be? But let's stop and think about this in the context of the last couple of chapters. What happened to the last town that even though they didn't do anything wrong, had some interaction with David? It didn't go so well for the town of Nob, right? So given what I'm seeing about this, the way information is flowing in this small area of Israel, I think Keilah knew what happened to Nob. And I think they understand that we're not going to take that chance. So David moves on after he gets the answer. I think he probably understands that even though this seems like incredibly ungrateful on the part of the people of Keilah, that he couldn't expect people to be put in a position of personal risk like this for him. We see David growing and maturing. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't even say anything to the people of Keilah that's recorded. He just leaves. And it all started with seeking the Lord. His growth and maturing that we're seeing and how he's handling difficult situations starts with seeking God and his will for his life. We note um, in verse 12, I'm sorry, 13, that his little band of men has grown from 400 to 600. So he's continuing to attract people to him. Saul gives up the expedition once he learns that David has left Keilah, but it says at the end of verse 14, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Why did Saul not catch David? Because God didn't deliver David into Saul's hand. God is the one that's responsible for the success or failure of Saul's missions, and he's responsible for the success or failure of David evading capture. So that was the deliverance of David at Keilah, and it's through this direct revelation that God gives to him um, through, the, uh, through inquiring. So th- now David goes to a place, in a wilderness called Ziph at Horish, which means forest. So he's in this forest wilderness. And in verse 15, David um, sees, that sees I, I don't know how he sees, maybe there's just an additional information, that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God and said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. My, Saul, my father, knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before, before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. So here we, see, here we see Saul seeking David every day and can't find him. And then Jonathan seemingly just goes like right to him. I mean, I, I, you know, we don't, we're not told all the details. Maybe it took him a month to find him. I don't know. But Jonathan is able to locate him and Saul couldn't. But most importantly, we see here Jonathan being a good friend. And what does a good friend do in this case? 
from the text. He encourages him in the Lord. So how did he do that? What was the encouragement that he gave to him? Did he just say, you're going to make it. This is okay. Put on a smiley face. No. What, what is the basis for the encouragement? Bingo. He reminds him of God's promise. He's saying, God made a promise to you. God will be faithful. He will accomplish it. What he has done in the past is going to be shown in the future to be true. By pointing back to the promises of God, Jonathan encourages David. And he also encourages him by covenanting with him. Again, we've seen this two or three times. It's not clear as to what the content of the covenant was. Maybe it was a renewal of the prior covenant of faithful friendship that we've seen. But we see here there's an encouragement in friendship. There's an encouragement in the faithfulness of a friend that just says, listen, I'm here for you. I'm with you. I understand what you're going through is hard. And I want you to know I'm with you right now. That's really encouraging stuff. And then you pack that on to the backside of we have a faithful God and I'm a faithful friend. That is really powerful. And that's what we as believers need. We, we weren't meant to be Lone Ranger Christians. Even Lone Ranger had Tonto, right? He had a faithful friend in Tonto. That's not the way God designed us. That's not what he meant for us to be. And that's why he gave us a church. That's why he gave us a church family that will do things like this, that will say, you have a faithful God and I'm a faithful friend. And you put those two together and that's where encouragement really can be powerful. So David, Saul learns again in verse 19 of David's location. This time we're told how he learns of it. And it's from these people of Ziph, called the Ziphites. So these people of Ziph come and say, listen, we know where David is. He's living in the wilderness that's in our backyard. And they volunteer to actually deliver him. Now, given everything that's happened so far, I would have expected the next verse to say, Saul mounted an expedition to go find David in the wilderness of Ziph. He doesn't do that. He sends the Ziphites back in verses 21 through 24 to verify David's location. So I think what's happening is Saul has like chased these false leads a couple of times and he's like a little tired of it. And maybe he, he knows that there, the, the time lag between him getting the information is just enough that, that he won't be able to catch up. And so he's trying to find out, you know, what is David's patterns? You know, is he moving among these different refuges? I have trouble with that word. He, he, these different places of sanctuary, these different places where he's safe. There we go. We'll just abandon that word. All right. Sorry. Anyway, Saul sends the Ziphites back to, um, to double-check David's location. So ironically, what did we see David do a few minutes ago? He was double-checking with the Lord. Now we see Saul just double-checking with the Ziphites. Like, Saul, go to the Lord. Go to where you can really trust the information. He continues to be only concerned about himself. Verse 21, let's take a look at that. Got to turn my page. Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord. He, he again spiritualizes this stuff. 
for you have had compassion on me. Saul is very concerned about himself. He is not concerned about the Lord. He doesn't appear to be concerned about the people. He's concerned about himself and his kingdom, his ruling. And we see that Saul will, that, that the Lord spares Saul from David. I think I jumped one. Sorry. No? That was right. Okay. So we see at the, at the end of um, chapter 23 that Saul is deterred by a Philistine attack. So eventually Saul comes to this wilderness and he is chasing David. And this one sounds like a very close call. Take a look at verse 26. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. So it sounds like this is like hot pursuit. This is, they're just about to capture them. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. So here we see that the Lord spares David a different way. The, the unique ways that God has of accomplishing victory or delivering David or um, having his will accomplished, the, the variety of it is just amazing. I mean, if you look back to the book of Joshua, how many times did the walls of a town fall down? Once. How many times did giant hailstones you know, pummel the enemy? Once that we know. These are all that we know of. How many times do we see that, that God allows the Philistines to attack a town of Israel, his people, in order to deter Saul from a close capture? once. We can't put God in a box. We can't say, oh, God worked this way in my life, so he will always work this way in my life. That's a small God. God is so much bigger than that. God works in unexpected ways in our lives, and that's what he was doing in David's. There's no coincidence that the Philistines mounted an attack just at the right time. There was no co coincidence that the messenger arrived to tell Saul the news just at the right time. God is in the background superintending all of these events. David escapes to Engedi. You know, we see throughout Scripture that God puts his people in desperate situations for his glory and for our good. So, what does that mean to us? If God puts us in seemingly desperate situations, it is not because he doesn't care. It is not because he doesn't know. It is not because he's not powerful enough to do something about it. It's because he has a plan. And his plan is for his glory and it's for our good. Now we'll move to chapter 24. And here we'll see the Lord delivering Saul. He delivers Saul from David. He also delivers David from shedding the blood of his anointed. Let's uh, jump to verses 3 through 6. We see Saul you know, mounts another expedition. It uh, feels like he's getting close. Verse 3 says, And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. The scripture's candor is amazing. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. 
Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, saying he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So David refrains from striking the Lord's anointed, even when it seemed like, from a human perspective, this was the opportunity. This is something that David is again showing his growth and maturity and is again showing what it means to be a man after God's own heart. You know, David's men urge decisive action. They actually say in verse 4, this is interesting, here is the day of which the Lord said to you. So we we don't know exactly where this came from, if um, the Lord actually had said this to them, to, to David, or if the men were saying this based on, you know, putting a bunch of things together and they're saying, you know, of course, here's your enemy. He's delivered on a platter. You should take him out. But David doesn't look at it that way at all. This may just be manipulation by the men. It's, it's an understandable position. You know, these men have been running and strategically, you know, they've not been engaging in battle and killing Saul looks like stopping running. So that sounds pretty good if you're one of these guys, right? They haven't really completely thought it through, though, because there's still a 3,000-man army outside the cave, and they're like 600. So that's not great battle odds. So you're just going to hope that everybody goes home when Saul's dead? That's probably not going to happen. So David, instead of killing him, sneaks up. We're not sure exactly how this happened, but evidently it's very dark in the cave, and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. So why did he do this? Why did he cut off a corner of his robe? To prove that he was there. So what does it matter that he's there? He could have killed him. So he's showing that he was in such close proximity to Saul that he could have killed him if he wanted to. The robe is a symbol here. The robe's a symbol of the royalty of, of, of Saul, that he is the king. So symbolically, what's going on? Does this sound familiar? Go back to chapter 15. There was another robe that got torn. It wasn't Saul's, it was Samuel's. What did Samuel say in response to the tearing of the robe? Yeah, the, the kingdom is going to be torn from you just like you've torn this robe. So there's some symbolism here that, that the, the piece of the robe is the, the kingdom being taken, taken, not torn, taken from Saul. What's the problem with the symbolism is that God was going to do the taking, and here David does the taking. And I think that's where David's heart convicts him about this. So David cut Saul's robe, but God was the one that was going to take the kingdom away from Saul. So why does David nobly spare Saul's life in this situation? Well, David respects God's choice of Saul as God's anointed. He understands that God, his authority, has said Saul is the king. So Saul is an authority in David's life as well. 
And as such, David has no right to harm him. You'll notice in all of these scrambling around that David never says, let's, let's invent a trap and let's lead Saul and his army into this, in, into this place where we can ambush them and we'll take them all out. There's none of that. It's always like, let's just get away from them, let's avoid engagement and stay as safe as we can. What is David doing? He's leaving timing to the transition of the kingdom in God's hands. Here we see more growth and maturation of David, that he's willing to to wait, that God said, I'm anointing you the next king of Israel. And in a human standpoint, we'd say, great, I'm ready. And God's saying, "Uh, no, you're not. You're not ready. And I've got a lot of work to do on you before you're going to be ready. And this timing thing is difficult, isn't it? We see things in our lives that we want to happen, and we need to wait on God's timing. So a man after God's own heart does what? He trusts in God's timing. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. He refuses to do that. He instead is content to wait. This is a sign of spiritual maturity, when we are willing to wait on the Lord. I think there's some really significant leadership um, example here as well. He's able to persuade his men to stand down and to not take action. His leadership is based on his theology. God is sovereign. God will do it. God anointed Saul, and that choice must be respected because God is the authority. So Saul leaves the cave in one piece. His robe, not so much, but he is alive. And then we see in in verses 8 through 15... That, um, that David actually rebukes Saul. Now, given what, um, what David had just said about the Lord's anointed and all that, my, my inclination would have been that he would have, like, not said anything. Like, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have spoken to Saul like this. But he doesn't mince words. He rebukes Saul for pursuing him. He does it in a very respectful way. In verse 8, he addresses Saul as king. He, he generously attributes Saul's view of him to Saul's advisors rather than to Saul himself. He relates that God gave Saul into his hand in the cave. In verse 10, he proves his point through the, uh, the dramatic illustration of the piece of the robe. And he proclaims his innocence towards Saul in the end of verse 11 through 13. He says, I haven't sinned against you. And he calls for God to judge between them. This is strong language. And he pledges in verse 13 to not be against Saul. And he calls on Saul in verses 14 and 15 to stop pursuing him. He casts himself with humility and says, like, I'm unworthy. I'm a dead dog. I'm like a flea. And why are you even bothering with such a one as me? He again appeals to God to judge between them and deliver them deliver him. So while David refuses to take violent action against Saul, he doesn't hesitate to confront Saul verbally and rebuke him respectfully for Saul's hostility in pursuing him. While David does not take matters into his own hands, he leaves it and leaves it to God to deal with Saul's sin. He doesn't hesitate to call out Saul for his sin, even in front of other people. You think about this. There's Saul's army is right there, and David just says it like it is, right in front of the whole army. The king, an authority figure, is, being, is sinning publicly, and that warrants public rebuke from David. 
He does swear to uh, protect and not kill um, Saul's family. Saul, in verses 16 through 19, acknowledges David's goodness to him. He is weeping. It appears, you know, it sounds like a confession. You are more righteous than I, verse 17. You have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. It sounds like he's saying the right things. He even acknowledges in verse 20 that that David is going to be the next king. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. There's no doubt in Saul's mind now who the next king of Israel is. He acknowledges that David will reign, and so he asks for God to, for Saul asks David to spare his family, and David swears to do that. So, a couple of discussion questions now. First one What does David's example teach us about a man after God's own heart? What they do when in distress? So, thoughts about that? What does a man after God's own heart do? when in distress? Call upon God. God. Yep, same thing. Call upon, but also depend upon. Yeah, yeah. Really two separate things, right? So calling upon God and also being willing to depend on God and wait on Him. A couple other things that I thought of. Calling on God is an inquiry as to his will and direction. You know, what, is, what are you calling on God for? Calling on God for guidance. And as Shirley said, we all need that. We all need God's guidance in our lives. There's an acceptance here that God's will may include difficulty. David accepted what God had for him at this time, and that included difficult situations. Recognized and respected God's authority in his life. Part of that was by refusing to take matters into his own hands, waiting for God to act. We're starting to see a more mature man of God in in David, the things that he did. Another discussion question, why would God require David, his choice for the next king of Israel, to run for his life, to go through this? This is an extended period of time. I, I don't know how long it was, it was years, not days or months. Do you hear that? To depend on God. So why is that important for the next king to depend on God? Yeah. Yeah, humility. Humility, you know, one of those attributes that can be easily missing in leadership. Because when when a person is the leader, they tend to think, oh, I'm the one that's responsible and I have the answers. And so they start thinking that they actually know what to do and that people should like acknowledge that, that humility is really important and that dependence on God is important. Putting ourselves in a position to, to show that even though David is putting, David, David putting himself in a position to show that not only is he the king of Israel, but he's dependent on God, the true king of Israel. That dependence is something that we can chafe at. No one likes to be dependent on other people, really, right? I mean, as I age, I find myself dependent on people to do things for me that I would have liked to have done myself. It's okay. 
It's okay. God puts other people in our lives to help us do things that we can't do anymore. I think dependence, that was number one on my list, by the way. That was that, 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 we, that David would need to learn dependence on the Lord, that he would never think that he was doing it himself. Anything else? Hutch. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how many Davids we've had. <laughs> we've had a lot of Sauls. Yeah, I've, I've often thought as we've studied 1 Samuel the last several months that, that God was showing Israel how bad a king could be in order to show them how good a king could be. And the good King David is not even, you know, as, you know, as we go through the next books, we're going to see that he's not perfect by any means. And all of this should be driving the people to say, we need God to be king. We need a perfect king. And he's setting them up to, to, for Jesus, the Messiah, the perfect king. God isn't just doing one thing with one person at one time. He's doing multiple things with multiple people. Like, it's so far beyond our comprehension. But that's such an excellent point, Hutch, that he's teaching the king dependence, but he's also teaching the nation dependence. Another thing I thought was he was, in, in, in requiring to Dave, for David to run for his life, he's creating some empathy in the future for people that are in distress. So he's creating a compassion in David to understand where people are coming from that he, David didn't always have a primrose path to walk down, and that will help him. I would also say that these difficult times spawned multiple psalms that believers for centuries have looked at in times of difficulty and found, found great comfort. Would those have been generated if David had just been handed the crown on day one and had experienced no difficulty in his life? I don't think so. Psalm 57 and 142, in that little kind of head note right above them, they reference David in a cave. And commentators believe that this instance in chapter 24 was the impetus for those two psalms. And it's not just two psalms. One commentator, and I didn't look at all these different psalms, but one commentator says these, these chapters of David running, not just the two we've looked at today, their backgrounds are based on based on, there's multiple psalms that are based on that background. 18, 34, 52, 54, 56, 57, 63, 124, 138, 142. We would have potentially missed all of that if David doesn't have to run for his life. Thanks, David. So let me ask you, make it a little personal. We all have difficulties in our lives. What is it that we will be missing if we didn't have the difficulties in our lives? Amen. Learning to trust God. Learning how to forgive. That's excellent. Other people might also benefit 
from the difficulties that we have in our lives. All right, just to wrap up, we see here faith accepts suffering and trials because of it. It is assured that God is at work to accomplish his promises in our lives. Faith believes that God is good all the time. And our concluding point here is that a man after God's own heart recognizes and submits to God as his authority. And just like to finish with one quote from a commentator that I, I found poignant. Therefore, we conclude that the most important issue, and he's speaking about these chapters, is one of long-term authority, not incidental acts. Acts are important, but who is in control, God herself, is even more important. For a believer, the most important issue is authority. Believers can determine who is in control of our lives fairly easily by asking ourselves two questions. Do I ask for God for guidance, or do I ignore him and make my own plans and decisions without praying? And do I submit to his will, word, or do I disobey it, having ignored it or disregarded it? Whose authority are we following in our lives, our own or our God's? Let's pray. Father, you are the ultimate authority in our lives, and we gladly submit to it because we know that you are good. We know that you're in control, that you are sovereign, you're in charge. We just uh, look forward to worshiping you now together in the congregation. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.